Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Right. Are we ready? Yeah. Hello, everybody. Hello. No, we've just been out onto the terrace here at Times Towers, and oh my goodness, it's got hot, hasn't it? It was beautiful. It was yeah. one of those moments. It's a little bit like getting off an aeroplane. No, it was like entering the blanket of foreign lands. Yeah, going when out you there. just get that woof. Yeah, and everyone always writes about it in books, don't they? It's like entering an oven. Well, <laughs> well, they do write about it in books because it's a very definite thing. Because it is true that often, though not today, you can leave the UK and it can be, you know, let's be honest, it can be 13 Celsius in August and then you land somewhere else and it's 34. <laughs> and you just feel a new person, don't you? Well, you do, but my point would be that actually not very many people have ever walked into an oven. But we're all expected to really understand that as a metaphor, aren't we? Well, I, when I write my award-winning novel, I won't use that. No. No, because if I do, you'll be... You'll know that I'll come down on you like a ton of bricks. Yeah, absolutely. That's another one. Like a ton of bricks. How many of us know what it's like to have a ton of bricks fall on your head? That's very true. So stop saying it. OK. It's been the end of quite a long week, everybody, but we're still OK. Perhaps <laughs> it's just as well the temperature's only gone up today. If we were working Fridays, we wouldn't be, but we're still OK on a Thursday evening. Uh, some of your titles for your emails are just fantastic. Cold Babies and Doll Lobotomies uh, goes yeah. One of my all-time favourites. Yeah, uh, and uh, we've also had a very, a very interesting one actually. And do you know what? I know that I often uh, do you down for your kind of spooky wise woman thingy, your ability to read the runes. Mm. But mm. you know, when we were talking about an email from Charlie, who was trying to get me to listen to the arches yes. on account of the coercive control thing mm. with rob mm. and you said are you sure that that's not an email that then details their own yes experience yeah and it did turn out to be detailing okay. experiences so i really i doff my cap to you and also I'm slightly scared now well no i do have a gift i mean i know that because you do want mock and I, i'll hand it to you your right to mock my fortune telling Always on sport and completely yeah. I mean, wrong. Just, for goodness, I just never want anybody to place a bet <laughs> on your predictions. <laughs> but sometimes more sensitive things, I am right on. Yes, and you are right about that. Uh, so we will save that email for our email special. Uh, but it's also got some very funny bits in it as well about, you know, whether or not vegans... <laughs> 
have a right to tell you all about being vegans. Uh, I'll do cold babies and doll lobotomies, though. This comes in from Jackie. Listening to the pod this week, I thought I would tell you about two things you reminded me about. My son was born in late September, and I was always a bit crap at ensuring I had all of the appropriate equipment with me. When he was about three months old, I set off into town with him to collect the Christmas turkey. My intention was just to pop in and out quickly. However, I failed to think through the fact that there may be a queue. The queue outside the butcher's was about 30 minutes and I had no coat, hat or even blanket in the pram to protect my baby from the cold. What a shocking mother you are. I ended up using the newspaper I'd bought as a makeshift blanket. It was also the time when Infocol was out of stock nationwide and I remember wheeling him around Tesco's in my pyjamas crying and begging the pharmacist for something that would help this incessant colic. Uh, My son is approaching 24 years old now, has just finished university, is six foot three, so I think I got away with it on both counts. Well, I'm here to say that had um had you been a bit more careful he might be six foot five <laughs> yeah think on that jackie. yeah just think about that jackie in other news my sister and i had a large collection of dolls when we were children my mum was a doctor so all of our dolls had holes in their foreheads as we'd given each and every one of them a lobotomy Oh, my God. I mean, that's quite advanced, isn't it? I mean, a minor appendix operation, I could understand. Isn't that extraordinary? A full lobotomy. How sinister. Uh, Jackie wants to say thank you for the book recommendations, The Lincoln Highway and The Girl with the Louding Voice. Uh, Both amazing and Mm. currently reading At the Table. Uh, And I'd forgotten those, actually. So The Girl with the Louding Voice is by Abby Dare. I think it was one of my favourite books of last year. And The Lincoln Highway is by Amor Towles, Tolles, Tolles, whatever... Uh, one of you wrote a gentleman in Moscow as That's well, right. didn't he? Which I haven't read. Um, I often go into a bookshop and pick that up and think, no, no, I'll leave it until I can fully focus on it. Because I read the Lincoln Highway on my holiday last summer, and I, it's a proper road trip. It's yeah. a literal road trip of a book, and it's somehow appropriate for holiday. But it's a great, it's just a great yarn that. And we love a good yarn. Oh, we do. Oh, yeah. We like a good yak, and we like a good yarn. Um, episode 143 is the title of Gillian's email I'm listening as I work as a gardener so apologies for short with very likely bad grammar and spelling as I need to be quick that's not just me being inept that's a literal reading out of Jill's very swiftly <laughs> enough fair get on email. with it. Yes, exactly. to the email you received from the lady who'd just been in Japan was finding her return to the UK noisy can I just say I agree I just got back from cycling the west coast of France and how lovely and quietly spoken the French are. Or at least they just speak at a normal level. You realise how loud we Brits are. In fact, we encountered some British people on one of the campsites and yes, you could hear their conversation so clearly around the whole campsite. Is this a new thing or have we always been so loud? Asks Jill. So I'm just going to imagine what that British conversation... I mean, to be fair, Jill is also British, but uh, there she is on the campsite and I can hear I can hear a woman's voice shouting, Nigel! Have you got the brickets? <laughs> It'll be something like that, won't it? It will. Yeah. And then there'll be a couple of squawking kids in the mix as well. Possibly a noisy dog. But I don't actually think that British people are that noisy abroad oh no i disagree oh do you okay yep. right i disagree right. Right. so i think in if you're abroad in a restaurant uh, especially in france and there's a english i'm going to say english specifically family yes uh, you've been very careful to say yep. that yes. i think uh, you definitely know it mm, well. i think sometimes it's just a i 
I'm going to be really honest about this. I think it's a real arrogance of the English person travelling abroad. Do you think that still happens? Yes, I do. Yeah, it's Just, you know, my language is the language everybody speaks. There's something about me, you know, that means I can travel. I feel free in this place, even though it's not my place. Mm. I think that goes down an awful lot. And actually, Satnam Sanghera makes that point in his books, that uh, that is only the British, and obviously he's enlarged it from just English, who have a thing of being an expat. No other country has expats as a kind of well, community they're thing. actually immigrants, aren't they? Yeah. But, you know, we have a sense that we can go. Oh, I see. It's all right for abroad. us. It's all right for us. We set up immigrants. a community everywhere. We're expats. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes, that's a very, very good point. So I think sometimes we're not particularly nice abroad. Do you think we're liked? No, not at all. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> I really don't, Jane. No. Uh, I was going to do one about the male pill. So there was a really interesting story around today, wasn't there, as well, which kind of combines quite a few things that we always talk oh, about yeah. on falling, the podcast. Falling birth rates. Yes. Mm. So the falling birth rate one is research out of Oxford University, which basically says the more you educate a woman, the fewer children she chooses to have. Yeah, which is true globally, isn't it? Uh, and it was always thought that the answer to population growth, which poses such a threat, is to educate women. Uh, and, uh, you know, am I... Is it my, I never remember whether it's my great-great or great-great-great-grandmother died after having her 14th child. And people always say, well, they must be Catholic. They weren't Catholics, so, you know, like a lot of families, it's all very mixed and we had Catholic sides and this happened to be a Protestant couple. Um, I mean, that is extraordinary, isn't it? Um, all 14 of her children lived to a great, great age, some of them to a very great age. So, um, but that's clearly not an ideal, is it? No. <laughs> no, it clearly isn't. And I remember now, it's my great-great-grandmother because my great-grandmother, who I met, was the oldest of those children. Okay, yeah. so they spawned huge amounts of economic units who could pay tax. Yes, Miriam Case would have loved that branch of my family. Yeah, so Absolutely. you need to explain to our, especially to our external listeners. Well, Miriam Case is a Conservative MP, and I'm going to say she's on the, uh, she's on the fringe, she's on a fringe of uh, of even the Conservative Party, if you can imagine such a thing, and uh, she basically uh, was just bewailing the lack of future taxpayers but this is a difficult thing because let's be honest about bringing up a child it's a it's a you, you do discover to your amazement that it turns out to be quite a commitment and um it's not something that's over in the pregnancy honestly is neither here nor there the first couple of years yeah they're tough but crikey try teenagers and then try people in their 20s who wake you up in the middle of the night because they want you to do the fake tan on their backs I mean, you know, it's it never... It's non-stop, darling. It's non, non-stop. Well, it does stop, because I did have a couple of hours sleep before I was woken up to do the fake tan. But, yeah, it's it's a fairly major commitment, which if you gave yourself time to consider, you may not be prepared to take up. But, I mean, we were talking earlier, weren't we, and I, I said that I had always wanted children, and I never quite knew why, because I, I, I wasn't sort of um, a particularly, and this is a you know difficult thing to say, but a girly girl, but I did really, really want to have children. Mm. And you were not so sure, were you? No, so I definitely had, I think in my 20s, I really didn't give it any thought at all. And I didn't see my horizon. I really 
Uh, I, I've never been uh, a very kind of, that's exactly what I'm going to be, mm. that's what I'm going to aim for. You know, I don't have that kind of mind anyway, so maybe that's got more to do with it than any kind of choice about fertility. But I just didn't always think that I would have children. Uh, and I did have children quite late. And I had children because I met someone who I wanted to have children with, actually. But um, that's almost by the by. What I just find incredibly difficult is this notion that the state, uh, especially in a first world country, thinks it has anything to contribute to conversations with women about their fertility. And I'm not being derogatory about countries in the developing world. I'm saying something about a prejudice I think we have about mm. countries in the developing world. And they've got an awful lot of issues about women in education, which they will be looking to us yeah. and thinking what's going on there do we want to head in that direction? So that's a kind of separate geopolitical argument. But the notion that that women should either be discouraged from having kids or encouraged to have kids because a balance sheet somewhere might need something from their progenies, progenies mm. in future generations, I find really uh, repulsive because exactly as this conversation proves, it's a really personal thing whether or not mm. you have children you may think different things at different times in your life. You may think different things when you're with different people in your life. And it's not only women who are having these thoughts in our heads as well. Yeah, I mean, the idea that when little uh, Daphne is born, that you gaze at them and think, oh, I wonder if she'll ever win an Olympic medal or the Nobel Prize for chemistry or will she ever be in the higher tax band? <laughs> yeah. I, I do hope so. Yeah. Um, because I'd like her to contribute. I mean, it's just, it's a bizarre way. But I think every developed so-called country in the world has this issue. Apparently Japan has a real problem with its glacial growth in terms of its population. Well, it does. And, and so they they have a problem as well because of their longe longevity. Yeah. yeah. So And also, weirdly, and I think, I wish we could do this on Urgent Question on our Times radio show, uh, no immigration. Yes, that's very true. Isn't and what it? you know, I don't understand really why that. Well, anyway. it's, that's a geographical thing. No, but they could accept refugees. Well, they could, but I think uh, historically it's been a very isolated. Well, we need to find out more, don't we? We must have listeners country. in Japan. Yep, I'm sure we do. And I could be very ignorant, so I apologise if I've said something really hideous. But also, don't you find it a bit insulting to even think? that there's a downside to educating women. Well, I, can't, I mean, obviously, it, it's just not great, is it? It's not. But also, and this is where we started with the male pill, it's just about men too. And if you continually have conversations about children only with women, uh, then I think we just miss an enormous opportunity to achieve equality sooner. Because men have thoughts about starting families too and about emotional responsibility financial responsibility you know if we don't we don't ask them to join mm. in this chat too and so it's as much about men being it is funny because as some, women sometimes the idea of having children is is couched in terms of it just being some sort of silly female indulgence <laughs> oh this silly old bird she wants to have a baby but also but, when it goes into oh that territory God. of you know uh women having to justify whether or not they feel fulfilled by having women oh, ask men as well ask men please too, ask yeah. men and also defend the right of any woman or man to say no thanks i don't want to have children i don't want them yes and i'll be fine and i'll be absolutely fine please don't judge me and also the right of all people 
uh, in a family setting to say sometimes I'm fulfilled by this, sometimes I'm not. That's a more real thing. Yeah. Everyone's got a job that they love sometimes and on some days they hate. It's just have they? I don't believe that. <laughs> it doesn't apply in this. No, room. but it's so broad brush, isn't it, James? Mm, yeah, so no, it definitely is. Um, do you want to read your email about the pill? Oh well, this is an interesting one from Sarah. Dear Jane and Fee, I'm surprised to hear men are reluctant to take a contraceptive pill. Many of my close male friends have, for years, lived in fear that they will unintentionally get a sexual partner pregnant or wear condoms. But these are not guarantees. A female friend of mine from uni became pregnant as the result of an affair she was having. She was clear with me that she wanted the man to leave his wife and she was out of options to persuade him the pregnancy seemed calculated his wife found out but didn't throw out her husband instead my friend became a single parent she's a gorgeous mother and has no regrets however my sympathy goes to the man who did not want a baby does not see the baby and had to pay for the baby. He believed in good faith that my friend was taking the pill. If the pill means women feel secure, they won't become landed with a the baby, then surely men should be afforded the same opportunity. Uh, I myself am 37 in a loving and child-free relationship. When I discuss it with colleagues or in general chat, women wink at me and say, well, maybe you'll have an accident. <laughs> oh, <Sarah>. oh, God. <laughs> That's just got everything in it, that one. Yes. So thank you very much indeed for that. And this is from Anonymous. I wanted to put across my view of the use of the pill. I've been on it for most of my adult life, nearly 25 years. Fortunately, I never had any side effects, uh, except on one brand, and I just changed it. For me, the fact that it's a contraceptive is just a bonus to the fact that I can run my packets together and never have a period. The break in pill packets to bleed was created just to reassure women that they were still having a so-called proper period every month. Uh, I relish the fact that I never have to have the headache, the bloat, or the cramps. I understand the pill isn't for everyone, but please don't demonise it because it does work brilliantly for some women. I think having a good GP is key. After wanting to reduce the hormones I was taking, I spent a year on the Mirena coil, which is often touted as the holy grail of contraception, especially if you've had your children. But for me, it was a nightmare. I lost a quarter of my hair, my skin looked like a volcanic eruption, and I put on loads of weight. So after a year, I asked to go back on the pill and it's clearly the best thing for me and my body. It's also worth mentioning that my husband would take a pill if it existed for him and he's offered to have a vasectomy. However, both these options would mean periods for me, so it's a hard no. I thank you very much for that email. I think that's another perspective. And we did say that um, there's plenty, perhaps, uh, fodder for this conversation in the Davina McCall documentary, which is on tonight, tonight Thursday, but I'm sure you can watch it on uh, all four after that. Yeah. Uh, can we say a very big hello to Susie? Thank you for your email. You point out that you remember the bionic man or action man with part of his arm that you could open up to see the bionics. She says, my brother had one. I do remember that. I don't think Cindy or Barbie had a similar thing. Uh, they didn't. No. Hmm. Which part of their body do you think you'd be able to open up and look at the body parts? I think, if left to their own devices, manufacturers may have made that around the uterus. Golly. Thank goodness they didn't. But Susie, I hope your daughter's all right. I hope you're okay. And I'm sorry that you've had such an, uh, a terrible time, actually. Some of the really bad things in life have been raining down on you. So I hope you're feeling all right now. I'm not rolling my R's, or am I? Uh, I didn't notice that, so I, I wasn't going to include that email. No. But you have been 
uh, accused. I mean, God knows I'm accused of all sorts, and often with some merit. What have I been accused of? Rolling your arse. Oh, I see, of rolling my yeah, arse. I thought yeah. it was something else. Uh, I don't think I'm doing that. But... I think there was a character in Mallory Towers by Enid Blyton who rolled her arse. She was a French mistress who was always telling people to roll their arse. Well, I think Matt Chorley rolls his quite a lot, doesn't he? Can you give me an example? I no. Don't, I don't quite know how it would sound. Yes, like that. Yep. I think he does. Maybe I'm just imagining that. I think perhaps it forms a part of one of your nocturnal fantasies. <laughs> um, this is from Anne, who's included some lovely photographs of dinosaurs, uh, which she spotted in Shaftesbury. So <laughs> I just think um, this is one of these stories you don't see in the mainstream media. Uh, so that's why we we're reporting it here. Thank you, Anne. Uh, there are dinosaurs in Dorset. They're trying to pretend it hasn't happened. That's the government. It's the dark web and it's the mainstream media. All right. <laughs> and it's the Liberal Democrats. They are keep they are No, don't you know, bring the Liberal they are Democrats. Washing in. the truth because <laughs> Anne has sent us photographic evidence. Oh okay. my gosh, are they going to disappear into the garage with the alien vehicles that Mike Pence has got over in America? It's not Mike Pence. <laughs> it's actually NASA. Uh, yeah, no, that's it. Well, keep an eye on that one. Page 30 of The Guardian yesterday, and we've heard nothing today. God, we should have asked The Guardian bloke on today. We had their chief Aubrey. senior political writer, didn't we? Mm. Uh, and, and yeah, well, we've aired our thoughts on that. Should be on page one, everybody. Well, anyway, uh, Anne, thank you very much for sending us, sending us your intel from Dorset. Uh, and also, if you do see dinosaurs out in the wild and you know in your heart of hearts that the MSN is not reporting it, then send it to us and we'll do it on off air. Uh, Anne also says she loves Ellie Griffiths and she's read the Dr Ruth Galloway series in order. Well, I'm not. I'm going to read more of them, but I don't think I've got them in order now, so they're going to be all, in a, all jiggled up. But are they... Uh... Are they a genre that you can read out of order? They are, but there's lots of back references, yes. Okay. But I do recommend that if you're looking for kind of, co I suppose it's not really cosy crime, but you actually get quite close to the characters. I'm really interested. There's a grumpy policeman. There's a slightly unorthodox archaeologist lady. They have an on-off relationship. It's super. Okay. Yeah, really good. And lots of um, deserted farmhouses and stuff like that. Oh, I don't like that. No, no, but I mean... not When anyone goes up a track by themselves, well, a bouncing <laughs> track by themselves. Human oh. remains. Oh, no. Yeah, but they're uh, old. No, we used to have a rallying cry on the family sofa, call for backup, which was used many, many, many times. Because you just wouldn't, would you? In, anywhere in Scandinavia... Don't go out on your own. ...after dark, no. as a lone woman, just mm. call for backup. Mm. Uh, right, would you like to introduce Judy Murray? Oh, are we not doing the book club? Oh, do the book club. Would you like to introduce the book club? We're doing a book club, um, so that bit was slick, and um, we've done a video, some content... On our Insta. Jane and Fee on the Insta. Yeah, now we're, we're edging towards Holly Willoughby. Uh, we're on a tail. Um, so we've got 3,000 followers now. She's still on 8.2 million. <laughs> but she is absolutely querulous in her high-heeled shoes because she knows we is coming for her. <laughs> she so so is. our book club is... It's called... What do you mean? It's called the book club. Yeah, no, I know, but what is in the book club? Oh, I see, a book. Yes. Uh, and the idea is that... No, we... people know what a book club is. <laughs> Honestly, love, they really do. <laughs> We're all going to read the same. Do you think I need to explain no. it? No. No, OK. So the book we've chosen, well, actually, we haven't, you have. 
Well, it's because one of our listeners chose it and then a lot of people piled in and said, yeah, that's really good. Uh, so it is the, the one that we didn't understand when it was in its original French, uh, but the translation is Fresh Water for Flowers. It's by Valérie Perrin. Uh, we're going to read it. It's not something that I would ordinarily have picked up. And I'll tell you for why, Jane. I'm just going to be very honest. Sure. There's quite a lot about it. Uh, when people say a beautifully intensely atmospheric, bittersweet dream of a book, uh, romantic, light, but not meaningless, uh, colourful and highly enjoyable. Uh, when I see stuff like that in the recommendations, mm. I feel that's euphemistic. And what it's going to be is too romantic and too wrapped up in a bow for oh. what I like, which is something with a little bit more backbone to it and sometimes a bit of steel. So I'm very happy to give it a read because I wouldn't have chosen it otherwise. Well, it says on the back there that over a million copies have been sold. Well, there you go. Of course, it doesn't mean they've been read. Uh, it was longlisted for the Dublin Literary Award. Longlisted. No, come on now. No, that's, we're going to read it because that's the whole point of our book club is to have an open mind, read things we wouldn't usually read. Yes. Fresh water for flowers. So if you'd like to join in, that's what you have to do. Um, beautifully written, said the Times Literary Supplement. And they eat in the same canteen as us. Well, they do. And they so, used to be run by the bloke who now kind of runs this place. Yeah, so they'll know what they're talking about. Anyway, um, yeah, join in on Instagram. You can leave Saki comments there. We don't really care. Uh, we've had worse. Uh, keep them coming. It's Jane and Fee. That's where you need to go. So our guest today, um, and we were so glad to get her because she's a lovely person and she's so interesting to talk to. And she's eloquent and she's been there and done it. It's Judy Murray. Uh, she was actually a, a tennis player herself. She was a good player, uh, but obviously she's much more uh, better known these days as a coach. She's the mother of Andy and Jamie Murray, and she's been on Strictly, of course. Anton Dubeck has endorsed her novel, which is out today, Thursday, and it's called The Wild Card. And, yeah, it is set in the world of tennis. You probably won't be surprised to hear that, but um, it's not perhaps the story you might be expecting to hear. It's about a British tennis player called Abigail Patterson, who is at an interesting point in her professional life. At the grand old age of 36, and after a long period out of the game, she finds herself in the second week of Wimbledon. What's going to happen to Abigail Patterson? We asked Judy, would a comeback like that actually be possible? I think it would be very difficult if you'd taken a break and not come near the game at all. But what she did after she was forced to retire as one of the most promising prospects in Britain at 17 was that she went into, initially became a hitting partner for another coach and worked with a lot of other good young players in a paid capacity and then learned how to coach. So stayed in the game and mentored a lot of top junior players so she was always involved in tennis just out of the picture in terms of the main the main frame and I think that what uh, what you see now in tennis is many more of the top players staying around the top of the game because of all the advances in sports science and sports medicine they travel with physios they travel with fitness trainers they keep themselves in great shape so you see Serena still competing at 40 Venus still competing at 42 43 mm -hmm. Roger for still up there and contending so it in that sense it is 
possible. And it is very much a tale of you're never too old to follow your dreams. Well, that's why people are going to love the book, Julie. <laughs> uh, I won't give away the end, uh, but she has a secret which she has to basically keep on keep on the down low, and it all comes to the surface. And uh, I don't want to I don't want to ruin anybody's enjoyment, but you'll you'll be smiling at the end, won't you? That's that that's the point. It's not yeah. it's not a sad thing, so that's yeah. great. Um, but there are some difficult aspects to the story you tell here, and I just wonder whether you were considering writing about all this stuff before. I'm talking particularly about player-coach relationships um, because they're tricky. They can be extremely difficult, can't they? Yeah, I definitely saw an opportunity to raise awareness of some of the challenges and issues that exist for women and girls in sport, not, not just in tennis. And one of those, of course, is abuse of power, abuse of, of trust. And I think that when I was the Fed Cup captain, the British women's team, and I went, I spent about six years on the women's tour with our, with our girls. And the first thing that I learned was how much harder you have to work to make things happen on the women's side of the game than on the men's. And the second thing was that there's hardly any female coaches on the women's circuit. It's, it's dominated by male coaches. And when I first encountered that, when I walked into my first player lounge and I went, wow, where, where's the female coaches? They didn't exist. And that made me think, you know, what do these young female players do when they have a problem? You know, whether that's physical, financial, anxiety over something, emotional issues, menstrual cycle, mm. the pill, all of these things. Who do you go to talk to? In, in confidence. Who, who did they go? Well, actually, what the WTA did, that's the women's tour, they started to recognise that there needed to be an outlet for women to go to in confidence. Mm -hmm. And they brought in a, a, a few, uh, they were called lifestyle managers, older women who understood the tennis circuit and were there who you could go to in confidence, who would listen, uh, advise and who could act where they needed to because if you think about it you know you're a, a young female player you're traveling around the world with usually a very much older guy or male team ar around you and you're the employer and it's a how do you how do you learn how to be I, an employer when I you're like like late teens yeah and you know unless you're in the lux luxury position of being able to afford to have a parent or parents or brother or sister to travel with you you're out there on your own and you are in that sense very vulnerable you obviously have two highly successful tennis playing sons if you'd had daughters would you have been actually happy for them to do that for a living or would you have been concerned you know i've, I've been asked that a few times and you know for sure for all that i went with my kids when they were in their later teens in order to help them you need to have somebody around you that you can trust who's there for you to give you the emotional support who has your best long-term interests at heart and not Everybody has that. A lot of people see the fame and fortune, um, but not, you know, and you, generally speaking, can rely on family for that. And a lot of parents do travel and a lot of parents assume the role of the coach, but that it doesn't always work out. So for the player to speak out about, I've got a problem with my parent, mm. you know, taking advantage of me financially or abusing me or whatever. I mean, there's some, there are some horror stories out there. They're well documented. Um, but yes, I think if, if I'd had daughters, for sure, I would have been there every step of the way if I could have afforded to do that. And I think if I hadn't, I may have advised them to in a different direction. Right, okay. Well, that's t that's telling in itself, I guess. Mm. Fee and I were uh, talking the other day, actually, after we saw the pictures of um, Emma Raducanu 
sitting up in bed looking happier than I've ever seen her after surgery. Now, I'm not undermining the seriousness of the of the surgery she's been through, but it really struck us both, didn't it, that we'd never seen her look so joyful. She looked really positively relieved and comfortable. And so often the pictures that you see of her, she's been looking quite distressed recently. I mean, even if she's had a, you know, a, a good day on court, she's looked unhappy. Is she a person, and it's, I know it's difficult for you to comment on a specific person, but is that the kind of concern that you're referring to, that we might actually all be witnessing in plain sight, actually, at the moment? Yeah, I think for, you know, most young girls of her age would be students and they would be studying, enjoying themselves, boyfriends, great social calendar and so forth. And, you know, she was catapulted into superstardom really when she won US Open an incredible achievement but completely unexpected and what it did you know obviously it put her into the public eye hugely it also catapulted her ranking to a place that normally she would have taken several stepping stones to get mm. there and on those stepping stones she would have learned along the way about the life and business of becoming a professional player and she didn't have that luxury so she really had a baptism of fire and she's gone through a number of coaches I think you know probably having this time off af um, after the surgeries will hopefully give her time to consider the long-term strategy from here. Who does she want in her corner? Who's going to advise her? Who's got her best interests at heart for the long term? And where's she going to have her her fun? And I mean, when you know, when Andy was eighteen and he started off on the men's tour, and we were able to afford a coach for the first time in Mark Petchy. Um, and I recognised it is stressful in a one-on-one -on -one situation, not just for the player. It's actually stressful for the coach as well. If you're 24-7 with a young player, you don't just assume the role of the coach. You're part parent, you're mm -hmm. part friend, you're all sorts of things. And the coach needs a bit of downtime as well. And so from time to time, I would send one of Andy's pals with him for a couple of weeks, you know, one of his tennis pals or one of his school pals to break it up for him and to break it up for the coach. And that was really just my common sense telling me, he needs to have a bit of normality in his life. He needs somebody to go go-karting with and yeah. out to the cinema, not the same older coach every night for lunch, dinner, breakfast. And has he ever said to you, or Jamie, uh, that actually they recognise some part of all of the problems that we face in adult life might be to do with not having had quite such a normal adolescence? I think with boys, I would say that what I saw more... In boys' tennis and on the men's circuit, the men in general, I think they tend to mix with each other much more. They've always got football or baseball or basketball in common. They still have all these fantasy football and basketball leagues among players. You see that kind of um, gang of friends going out for dinner more, going to do things together. You don't see it so much in the girls. I think they're more protective of their own space. They tend to see the others as being their competitors and so forth. So you do become reliant on that group or person that is around you. And that's why, you know, I've been really happy to see the WTA uh, bringing in a head of safeguarding, um, bringing in these lifestyle managers, which for me, especially with all the mental health challenges that we've had post-COVID um, and the hassle with social media and the media, I think these people are every bit as important as the physios who look, at, look after the mm. bodies that are that are pr um, provided for by by the tour. We've also seen things like the LTA are 
that's the governing body in Britain of tennis, they are advertising at the moment for a young person's welfare manager. And I'm thinking, that's great, because that means if somebody sees or hears or experiences something, there is somebody that they can go to where they can report things. Because for so many years, who do you go to? You're ashamed, you're embarrassed, uh, you're anxious, uh, you're frightened. Who do you go to that will listen to you and will act on what you say, i.e. believe you, (laughs) and do something about it rather than, I don't know how to deal with this, I'll just brush it under the carpet and hope it goes away. So, you know, I think through the book I've got the whole thing of speak up if you can't, but who do you speak to? So That's always been the problem in the past. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Judy Murray is our guest this afternoon. Now, actually, a question here from a listener, Judy, and I think this will uh, probably resonate with quite a lot of people. I'd like to hear from Judy if she thinks the LTA could learn anything from the Czech Republic or Czechia as far as women's tennis is concerned. They've only got a population of about 10 million, yet there are 10 Czech players inside the WTA's top 100 and 12 are involved in the singles at the French Open. Uh, Britain apparently has no no competitors at all at that sort of level at the moment. So what do they do right? You know, I'm not really au fait with what happens in, in Czech Republic. But what do we Czechia do wrong now? then, I suppose? But I think there's a lot to do with the hunger there. Mm. You know, the the opportunity to travel, make a living playing sport and so forth. They also have a number of club stroke academies where they really invest in nurturing potential and for me that's incredibly important um i think we could do a much better job of investing 
in environments with coaches who have track records of providing great foundations for young players, but not in a hothouse, entitled no. specialist. Taking thing. them away from home at the age of six. No. Yeah, that, that kind of thing. I think um, the countries that do continually produce numbers of players tend to have really a culture of tennis within the country um, and usually they have better weather as well so you can play outdoor all year round. Yeah I mean a class is always linked to tennis in England I think probably Scotland it is slightly different but in England it's just a plain fact that it's still middle class if not upper middle class as a sport and you mentioned hunger perhaps there just isn't sufficient hunger at the moment and I don't mean it in the you know the, the strict sense of needing food mm. I mean in the ambition the desire to get somewhere and do something maybe the wrong sort of English people are playing tennis yeah I think during the French Open Dan Evans who's one of the top British men players he, he came out and said he felt that there it was, there wasn't enough opportunity for those from working classes to come through and that they have the hunger and the desire to work hard because they're not privileged and in, entitled and I think he has something there but as someone who's worked a lot in places where there is rural deprivation or social deprivation I know that when you go into those places it's very difficult to find tennis courts we've lost yeah. them over the years state schools don't have them public parts for the most part they don't have them anymore and it's not just about the facility you need activity as well so yeah I think there's there's a lot of work to do to really spread the game into those areas and to make it stick you need people which comes about investing in a workforce to deliver fun do the, the pied pipers that always mm. were the volunteers within the community yeah um quick question about saudi because andy has been quoted as saying he won't play in saudi or, or in a saudi sponsored tournament because there is the, uh, the very real concern i think that the saudi state might come for tennis in the way that it's come for golf do, do, does that worry you i, I read that like you know what's what's happened with with golf and they do seem to be buying their way into a number of sports in a you know in a big way and I actually went to Saudi in December and what I did was I was there for four days to start the buildings of a female workforce for tennis that they want to grow tennis they recognize the schools are segregated the universities are segregated the girls and young women have to be taught by women and they don't have any sports coaches because traditionally they were never allowed to get involved in sport and now that they want them to you need to build a workforce which um so i i went over and and, and did that and uh, i really loved the idea of being able to be a catalyst for something. So you really bought into the fact that they're sincere about this? Yeah, I, I absolutely did. And having been there, I'm sure that they were. And the work that I did over those four days was long and varied and incredibly fulfilling because the reaction to me being there from the women was... Oh, it was it was really amazing. And, you know, somebody's got to go in and show the way or, some, or it never changes. So I took that step and... Um, and I, and I went in and, and, and I'm glad I did. That's quick, very good to hear. Yeah, that is good yes, to hear. Yeah. Um, very quick question, because I know if you want to talk about gods of tennis. Um, white clothing at Wimbledon and periods, has that finally been sorted out? Yeah, it has. Um, oh, probably six months or so ago, there was a decision taken that underclothing um, can be coloured. And I think for, you know, for many years, even way back to my playing days, there's trauma attached yeah, to no, having to be in all white yeah. you know if you, if you have your period and you know if you look back at women's sport everything in terms of shorts or skirts was always white from football to rugby to everything and all the other sports moved on 
much quicker and Wimbledon with its wonderful tradition and history stuck with the all white um, but it has actually made that decision to allow coloured underclothing. Mm. Right. I actually wish as well and this is a conversation for another time Judy that uh, somebody would take just a, a really long look at what girls are expected to wear in sport full stop. It just puts off so many so many girls to have to wear very short skirts yeah, why do and they have shorts and there's no reason for it now we've got all the technology around stretchy fabrics and all that kind of stuff but I did want to ask you about Gods of Tennis which I know that you've just started watching uh, with one of your sons it bills itself as being about the golden age of tennis stars now does that upset you? <laughs> <laughs> no because it because it actually I watched um the first episode and half of the second episode last night with Jamie and the first episode is about Billie Jean King and Arthur Ashe, two incredible pioneers of tennis. You know, there's Billie Jean King who I would have sat on the sofa with, with my mum watching Wimbledon in black and white and just being absolutely in awe of her as a player. And you know, now she, she's getting close to 80 now and she's still, she was the first female athlete activist and she's still going strong. So when it takes you back and you see the era that she came from, the wooden rackets, the slowness of the game, I mean, that that was how I learned to play with the wooden racket. So I was absolutely loving it and it just reminded me of everything that she went through to try and gain equality for the women. And she's the reason why tennis is so far ahead of all the other sports in terms of of visibility for women, media coverage, endorsement opportunities, equal prize money at the major events. And Arthur Ashe, who was such a great activist for people of colour, what he put himself through to be except you know when he was young playing and it was showing you all the men's entrance women's entrance colored entrance and you know for Jamie it was like oh wow. they didn't live in that era they need to be reminded of what these people who are so incredibly important to our sport put themselves out there to inflict change mm. that has made it the sport that it is today that is the truly brilliant Judy Murray and her book is called The Wild Card. So if you're a tennis fan and you just want to build up some tennis tingle as we await Wimbles, uh, then you can approach it through the medium of The Wild Card. And actually, um, off air, uh, while we were listening to some adverts, I mean, we do listen to them, obviously, we weren't paying full attention. Um, Judy was saying that Andy's youngest daughter, who I think is four or five, um, sent him a note. And we can talk about this because Andy himself uh, made it public on his Instagram account, sent him a note saying, um, basically with a drawing of somebody holding a racket, a stick person holding a racket and a big cross all the way through it. So it turns out she isn't that keen on tennis. Brilliant. Yeah. She's just letting him have it just letting him know yeah. and it's good to hear that small people uh, you see that's why you should have kiddies you see they're just gorgeous and they're so fun and they do some really cute things like that i also wanted to ask her about kim's hair oh it's immaculate it's beautiful yeah i can't believe it's real uh <laughs> Well, we did talk to the CIA's Master of Disguise, retired on the programme today. If you've never heard the Times Radio show, I mean, I, I will say we do offer a range of guests, don't we? We do. Yeah, it's I mean, got the full spectrum. To give people an example today, we talked to the CIA's head of disguise, in brackets, retired. Uh, we talked about extreme weather conditions. We talked to a young woman called Rachel who's living in New York and really struggling with the pollution at the moment. It sounded terrible. We talked to Uber weatherman Jim Dale, who told us there was an El Nino in development and this weekend is going to be very warm. We talked about paella and we talked to somebody called Aubrey from The Guardian. I don't think you'll get that anywhere else. And I spoke occasionally. A very good night. <laughs>
Good night. <laughs> You did it. Elite listener status for you for getting through another half hour or so of our whimsical ramblings, otherwise known as the hugely successful podcast Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. We miss the modesty class. <laughs> our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler, the podcast executive producer. It's a man. It's Henry Tribe. Yeah, he's an executive. Now, if you want even more, and let's face it, who wouldn't, then stick Times Radio on at three o'clock Monday until Thursday every week, and you can hear our take on the big news stories of the day, as well as a genuine interesting mix of brilliant and entertaining guests on all sorts of subjects. Thank you for bearing with us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.